0: Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near death experiences, premonitions, hauntings, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. everyone it's a pleasure to have you back with me on spirit sisters the podcast i want to take a moment before i introduce this week's guest to say thank you to everyone who's subscribed to the podcast and taken the time to rate it and leave a review on itunes i so appreciate that because that's the way that others who may benefit from these stories that i share will find their way to the podcast so thank you so much now to this week's episode Researching my book, Spirit Sisters, I found that, broadly speaking, there were two kinds of interviewees, those who'd had one key unforgettable experience that had, in many cases, marked a turning point in their lives, and those who'd had a lifetime of experiences to tell me about. I was particularly fascinated with these women, each carrying in their hearts a story that could fill its own book. Emily Rodovich, author of Mystical Interludes, is one of these women. As well as her two books, we discuss the childhood event that ignited Emily's fear of death, the near-death experience she had at age 18 that finally assuaged that fear, and the astonishing spontaneous past-life vision that took Emily back hundreds of years to a lifetime as a dancer in what was then known as Siam, today Thailand. Emily also shares a very moving story about the three steps to forgiveness that she learnt following a very painful chapter of her childhood. At the end, she also shares the key lessons that can help us all lead more fulfilling and loving lives, lessons that she's gathered from her lifetime of mystical experiences. So be sure to stay for that. Thanks so much and enjoy my conversation with Emily Rodovich. Good morning, Emily, although it is your evening. <laughs> welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. It's so lovely to have you on the line from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
1: And it's so lovely to be on with you. I am an admirer, and I have read your book, Spirit Sisters, and I'm just really blessed to be here. Oh,
0: thank you so much. That's so lovely to hear, and um, it's the 10-year anniversary of Spirit Sisters this year, and that's such an exciting moment for me as I revisit my former interviewees and also discover wonderful new spirit sisters like you. So thank you, Emily. So let's begin by you telling the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your life today.
1: Well, I grew up in uh, in the dark ages <laughs> where, where this interview probably would not have happened uh, because we did talk about spiritual matters in those days. But my mother was clairvoyant and I didn't She had to be secretive about it, so I didn't find out about it until I was a teenager. When I was 18, I had a near-death experience. And after that, I had many, many mystical experiences throughout my life. But because I was a child of a time when such things were taboo, I, of course, kept everything to myself. And it wasn't until um, late 2014 when my beloved partner, Jim, urged me to write about my experiences for my grandchildren. Well, that's when the magic started. Because when I sat down to write, it seemed like the wind was at my back, and before I knew it, I had... a, a bunch of stories, and then I got this urge to publish. Now, I want you to know, Karina, that after keeping these things to myself for so many years, the very idea of publishing um, had about as much appeal to me as standing naked on a public stage. <laughs> so, <clears throat> however, um, the sky opened up. Uh, I had an editor appeared, uh, a publisher. Everything just fell into place. So I was guided to write uh, my book. I have two books. The first one is called "Mystical Interludes: An Ordinary Person's Extraordinary Experiences." And at the end of that book, I I was pushed. I swear, I was pushed. <laughs> 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 to add a page that invited readers to please submit their stories, like like your spirit sisters, give me their stories, and I will publish them in a second book. So my second book came out last October, and it is Mystical Interludes 2, a collection of ordinary people's mystical experiences. So that's where I am today, but... That didn't end it because I would give, when I give book talks locally, people want to talk about their experiences and there's never enough time. So I ended up founding a group called the Mystical Interlude Discussion Group. So we started with eight members in my home And now we must rent a large room because our membership has grown so much.
0: Wow. So how many people do you have attending now?
1: Uh, Anywhere from 20 to 30.
0: That's fabulous.
1: At this time. And um, I expect the group to get larger because I'm now scheduling more more speaking uh, engagements.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So at this meeting, and how frequently (coughs) do you gather?
1: Once a month. We, we share stories. Uh, somebody will suggest a book, and we will read a book, and we will have a discussion of that particular book, and we have speakers who come. So the way our calendar goes is every other month we have a speaker, and we've kind of grown into a family of our own. So it's I just love the group.
0: It's a wonderful thing to do because one of the things I found um, after writing Spirit Sisters was how much of a service it turned out to be for people who, like you, felt very alone in in their experience and didn't feel they could freely share it for fear of being judged. And the number of times that I heard somebody say to me or preface their story with, you will think I'm insane or I've never shared this with anybody and you know please don't don't judge honestly it was unbelievable so I was so grateful to be able to provide that space for people to share and then as you would know Emily as well the feedback that you get from from readers who are so grateful also that you've gone to the effort to do that so yeah. and that's a, a Purpose of the podcast as well today, but um, thank you for writing Mystical Interludes and its sequel. They're both beautiful books, and I so encourage my listeners to to search them out. And at the end, we'll talk about how your website and how how to source your books. Mystical Interludes, your memoir, contains ten of your most profound experiences. And I thought maybe if you could start by telling us what the first mystical interlude you can remember is.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm trying to think. I haven't gone back that far, but I will tell you, not the first, but may I tell you of A few that I did not put in the book. Oh, i love that. An exclusive scoop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) One is, uh, I used to teach, and I had a uh, student, he had a lot of problems. He failed my class the first time he took it, and when he had to repeat ninth grade English, Mm -hmm. the procedure was that if you failed a class with a teacher, then they would give you a different teacher when you had to repeat that class. Well, when he found out he had a different teacher, he rebelled (laughs) and the guidance counselor put him back in my class. Now, the reason Ricky failed uh, was because he, I didn't realize this, he had health problems and he missed a lot of school. And not only did he have health problems, but he came from a, uh, an unhealthy background where his dad would keep him out of school to help him work. I got a phone call one day, and another teacher said, I have bad news for you, Emily. Ricky died today. Oh. And I was so struck immediately with such grief and such sadness. And I said, oh, I loved that boy. And the moment those words came out of my mouth, (laughs) a scrub brush in the hall, right opposite where I was talking on the phone, a scrub brush literally jumped off the shelf um, this there were steps that were going down to my basement on opposite the phone. Okay, and that, that scrub brush, literally, Karina, jumped off the shelf and bounced down the step. My husband was in the other room, and he heard that, and he he put his face before me, and he said, "He loves you too." <laughs> oh. And seriously, I have never forgotten that, and I really believe that Ricky does love me (laughs) because I think his soul is still alive, of course. And, um, that, that was, that was one. And I have others. (laughs) (laughs) You've got many. (laughs) I think one that, that kind of proves itself. I had so many, probably too many to talk about, but I used to walk, uh, in a cemetery. And I walked in that cemetery every day for years. And this one day when I was walking, I, now, I, before I go into this, I should tell you that my brother, who w- died when he was 39 years old, and he communicated with me quite a bit after his death. And um, it had been a while. His very best friend, whose name was Sam, uh, was there at my brother Steve's death. So Steve and Sam were very close. And after Steve's death, Sam became a second brother to me. On this particular day, I was walking. And for the first time ever, a crow came screeching past my face and just, Flew right across me, right across my face, just screaming, and it jolted me. And I thought, "Oh my goodness, this has to be a message of some sort." I do pay attention to those things; mm, it's important. Too. So mm. I, I went home and I cleaned. I did laundry. I cooked ahead. And <clears throat> excuse me, my husband came home he said, what's going on? And I said, I'm preparing for something, but I don't know what. And he knew me well enough that he said, "Okay." Well, that night at 11 o'clock, I got a call from Sam's wife, who was like my second my sister, my only sister. I didn't have a sister. And she told me that they were rushing Sam to the hospital in an ambulance. Could I come? That was 11 o'clock at night. She called the airline, got me an emergency flight. And I got on the plane around 2 a.m. and flew to New Hampshire. Sam had had a lung remove because of mesothelioma. And he had had a, a lung attack and was taken to the hospital. And while I was there... Sam was taken to hospice and he passed. First of all, the message was real. Now, this story continues because after I returned, which was a week later, I was walking through the graveyard and I said mentally to my brother, I know Sam's with you and I think you gave me the warning. Now, Please verify this in some way. And so this particular graveyard, Karina, you did you did a loop. You know, when when I walked, I would do a few loops. And on the second loop, I'm going up the pathway, and there is a crow feather. Now it wasn't there the first time, but this time I still have the feather I could show show it to you. This time, this feather was right smack in the middle of the side. And I picked it up, and I was filled with joy. And I just said, thank you. Thank you so much. So that was a verification.
0: That's beautiful. And I love how you say you were filled with joy at seeing the feather because... There is kind of an exhilaration in these experiences, an uplifting, you know, especially in those moments of signs and symbols and synchronicities that can happen. And it's like you say, like we just must be attentive to them, though, because it's very easy otherwise to miss some very important signals. Emily, I'd like to backtrack now to your childhood, which was very eventful in many respects, also very sad. Uh, I want to know a little bit about the kind of child you were and how that knowing of your mother's clairvoyance affected you. But as you say, you didn't really have a true understanding of it until you were a teenager. But as a little girl, you were fearful of death, weren't you? What was your feeling around that and, and what did you believe in terms of a spirit world?
1: We did not belong to a church because my parents uh, both came from different uh, religions. My father was Russian Orthodox, and my mother was Roman Catholic, <laughs> and that was a problem. So they were married by a justice of the peace. My spiritual introduction came from my, my dear mother. I was uh, the kind of child who was precocious and I never stopped asking questions. Well, of course, I just drove my poor mother crazy with questions about, because she would pray at dinner time. and I would ask her questions about God. And every night she would talk to God as though, and it would be a different prayer. There was never a memorized prayer. And she would include the family and neighbors, and I wondered who she was talking to. So the way she introduced me to religion, Karina, which I think was, I'm very grateful to her for this. She told me that we can't see the air that we breathe, but it sustains us. It keeps gives us life, and it nourishes us. And she said, we can't see God either, but we can see what he does. So she got some flower seeds and took me out along the house where the ground was fertile and a little watering can, and we planted the seeds. And she said, we do our part. We plant the seeds, and we water them and keep them free of weeds, and God does his part. Well, I I watched those seeds, and when the little green sprouts came up, I was so excited, and then some little flowers bloomed i couldn't even tell you today what the flower was but they came up and they bloomed honestly i got it i was so thrilled that changed that gave me a a different perception on the whole world i knew that god was there and that that truly that truly served me The reason I became so terrified of death was because a few houses up from where we lived, an elderly widow lived, and her name was Mrs. Morrow. And I would run errands. I would run up to the little store for my mother and pick up a loaf of bread or whatever was needed. And I would always stop and chat with Mrs. Morrow. Well, we became great friends. She became a surrogate grandmother to me. And I had long hair and she would say, Emily, and she'd have a comb and she'd say, I brought some, bought some ribbons for your hair and I baked some cookies and I would go up and sit on her wicker sofa on her large porch and she would braid my hair and put ribbons in them and I dearly loved her. Well, uh, fall came and I was in school so I was not i didn't see Mrs. Morrow because uh she wasn't out on her porch any longer, so one day it was a cold day. I remember it was rainy and i was I was across the street waiting for a playmate i think and when I looked at Mrs. Morrow's house, I saw a beautiful wreath on the door, and I went over. I knocked on the door and her daughter answered and her daughter said, oh, you've come to see mother come in. Nobody told me that Mrs. Morrow had died. And her daughter whisked me, you know, into the living room, up to the casket. And I stood there just mortified. I was paralyzed and I realized I knew what death was, but I had never been into a funeral home. I'd never witnessed a dead body or anything like that. And I kept thinking, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that she didn't say something. I was so grief stricken and so shocked by this that I went home and I couldn't talk about it right away. So this stayed with me. Uh, that aroma of flowers and and the the whole thing. I was so bad <laughs> that I would almost have to cross the street when if I were walking and there were a funeral home. I would cross the street so I didn't have to walk past the funeral home. Yes. So I carried that through my life until I had my near death experience, of course and then most people who have had a near death experience will tell you that when they come back they have absolutely no fear of death they realize as i do that we don't die
0: that's so powerful i am going to ask you about your near death experience if you can share a little bit with us in a moment please emily because it's it's uh it's a rare kind it's got some visuals that I've never encountered before in a near-death experience and I've read about many but before we do I just wanted to touch on something because I think later I want to return to this story but again it's something that happened in your childhood and it was a challenge and that was when your mum and dad split up and you and your brothers your two younger brothers went to live with your aunt also called Emily Yes. yes yes and you had some it was a I guess it was the ushering in of quite a painful chapter in your life. It was. Could you share with us a little bit about what happened and what you eventually ended up learning through that experience?
1: My aunt had no children of her own. She was married to a man 20 years her senior. And my mother left, couldn't take us with with her because she didn't have the means to take us with her. And she had a good reason for leaving when she did. But the day she left, my father gathered everything up and took us to his sister, Aunt Emily. And, and that's where we were to live. Now he stayed there too, but we didn't see much of him because he was working most of the time. My aunt was not re- ready to have three children dumped on her. And her patience uh, was very, very short. And in short, there's just no way to get around it. She was abusive toward us. My brother, Rodney, he had a uh, health condition. He, he was born with, with a hernia, and they couldn't operate until he was uh, in his adolescence. But I don't know how that affected his health, but his legs used to get kind of mottled looks on them, if, if you know what I mean, yes. little purplish spots and so on. And what would happen, my aunt would smack him across his legs, and I, maybe I would be in the other room, and when I came back into the room that they were in, I would see her white hands the, the mark across his legs. Uh, she had me scrubbing the floors and uh, washing dishes. I was seven years old. And when I didn't obey, she would, She was great for slapping across the face and pulling hair and so on. My younger brother, she was, she was abusive to him as well. I could go on, but uh, my mother... I, I prayed because I knew that God was there because my mother had taught me. And every night, uh, I slept on a, uh, on a sofa <laughs> that, that had hard springs in it. Oh. Do you remember those? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can still feel those springs. But anyway, that's where I slept. And I cried myself to sleep every night and prayed for my mother to return every night. Well... One Sunday, everything seemed to be different. And to make a long story short, my brothers and I were sitting in the room where the stairway was leading to the ground floor. And I heard somebody coming up the stairs. And as it turned out, it was both my parents. My mother had returned. I was so, so happy. And my father told us that we were going to moving into a place of our own well of course I wanted to move that moment
0: (laughs) of course
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it was going he explained that it would take weeks we had to prepare and find a place and so on and that night I realized that my prayers had been answered and Karina I was going I guess seven going on eight I experienced overwhelming gratitude as a child and I sometimes I wonder today if children have the opportunity to experience that kind of gratitude it was it was so joyous and Mm -hmm. so totally complete it just verified everything I knew so that was thanks to mom thanks for teaching me about God, and uh, I will never stop thanking God for, for that prayer, for her return. And the thing about that, Karina, that is uh, so remarkable, is that my parents stayed together for the rest of their lives, and they never fought over that. They somehow decided to put that behind them, and they were wonderful parents very loving toward uh, the three of us, we couldn't have asked for better parents. It was it was that great.
0: Ah, that's such a lovely story, and you tell it very evocatively in your book, Mystical Interludes, as well. But ultimately, that suffering that you endured with Aunt Emily led to a very profound understanding about forgiveness, which you also write about very beautifully,
1: that was in itself a mystical interlude. Yes. Yes. When you were asking me for my earliest experiences earlier, (laughs) (laughs) um, I was thinking outside the book. (laughs) But yes, these, these really were quite profound. What happened was, I thought we were going to move away when my family came back together again. However, as it turned out, the house that we were living in was a duplex, and the apartment right next to where we were living, on the other side of the wall became vacant, and my uncle and aunt needed a renter. so feeling obligated, my father agreed that we would move there and pay them rent. Well, I was a little disappointed, but tried to make the best of it. Aunt M, for some reason. Well, of course, she didn't like my mother because she felt that my mother had done my dad wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was absolutely uh, in support of, took sides in that uh, separation. So the best way I think to get to my mother was uh, for her to cause problems in our family. So she would make up things, or she would go to my mother and say, I'm suspicious of such and such. I saw Emily walking down the street, and uh, she talked to somebody that I don't think we know, and so on. Well, I talked to everybody. Well, one of the biggest things, she had a, a little gadget in her home. She asked me to go to the store for her, which I did. And the next thing I knew, she reported to my father that I had broken this gadget. Because when I returned her items from the store, she told me she left the door open to put them on the kitchen table and just leave them there. Well, this is just an example of the kind of grief. A few days later, my father comes to me and said, "Uh, did you break that little uh, wooden bird that Aunt Emily has. And I said, no. Well, he didn't believe me. And apparently she complained so much that he said, I want you to apologize. And I said, I didn't do it. He said, apologize for me. Well, you can imagine how conflicted I was as a child. And I very humbly apologized for something I didn't do. So I was filled with angst and anguish. I I was just miserable. I couldn't focus at school. I was just a miserable child. And one day, my, my friends and I, uh, one, one of my friends owned a farm. And on Saturdays, we would go to the farm and we would go up into the meadows and play. And we were walking up the hill. And one of my friends said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I'm okay. But then I saw a grove of trees and there were leaves. It must have been this time of year, Karina, because there were leaves on the ground under the, the trees. Mm. And it looked, it looked so serene. So I separated from my friends and I went into that little grove and I fell to my knees and I prayed and said to God, Please, I am so filled with misery and hatred for my aunt and I don't want to hate and I am so unhappy and it hurts. Please tell me what to do. How can I end this? And then I waited for an answer. And it came. And the answer was forgive. Now, the minute I heard that, I felt peace. I felt light. Now, I, I, I knew the word. I knew what the word meant. That I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lifelong lesson, that one. <laughs> and, and I was about eight years old oh, going online so at the time. Okay, so I just didn't know. Yeah. Well, I took that answer very seriously. Emily,
0: can I just interrupt you for one second? How did sure. this, the word arrive? Did you hear it as an audible voice outside of you or, or a feeling within you?
1: It was, a, it was not outside of me. It was a voice inside my head. I asked the question. I had no idea what the answer, that, that was not an answer I expected. Okay. <laughs> uh, truly not. At, at eight years old, that was not the expected answer. It, it was simply when after I asked the question, When you're waiting for an answer, Karina, you are thinking of other things. Your mind goes to a place to receive the answer. And that word just dropped into my mind. I knew it. Okay. That's how it came. To me, it was as real as my mother returning. I didn't know how to go about it. So every night when I would get into bed, I would think about it, and I, I, I was confused. I asked my mom, I didn't tell her why, but I just asked her what forgiveness meant, does it mean to forget, and she said, not really. Well that even confused me more, because I didn't know how those two could work. So I stopped <laughs> on my way home from school, I had to pass a Presbyterian church. And the minister uh, was a well-known, well-loved man in our community. Now, we didn't attend that church, but it didn't matter. Reverend McCready was a minister to all. So I went in, I knocked on the door, and he was in his office. He asked me to come in, and I told him I had a problem, and I asked him what I had to do to forgive. Well, we had a long conversation that I won't go into now, but in essence, he told me two big things. Number one, he said, in order to forgive, you have to be able to love powerfully. You must be able to love. Do you know what love is? And I said, oh, certainly. First, that's the first. The second thing is you have to take a God's eye view. You, you can't, he said, when we are upset with somebody, When we look at them, it's like looking through a little peephole. All you can see is what you dislike about them, what injury they did to you. That's all you can see. But he said, you have to back up and take a God's eye view. Look at the big picture. Find out everything you can about that person. Well, I... Weeks went by, <laughs> and I would try to love my aunt, and I couldn't. So I was so frustrated, but I could not give up because I had asked for an answer, and I had to follow through. So the next thing I did was to try to take the God's eye view, and I went to my dad, and I asked him about my aunt. What can you tell me about her? Um You know, what did she want to be when she grew up and things like this? And my father, my grandparents were first, were immigrants to this country. They had eight children. Uh, Actually, they had more than eight children. A few of them died. And my aunt was like the second or third of all the children. And for her childhood, as soon as she was able to care for herself, she was helping with those younger than she. She only went to the third grade because she was needed at home and she didn't like school and so on. So these are two things that I found out about her. And when I realized that she was taking care of little babies, and, and and my dad made it very graphic. You know, he said they would throw up, and she would have to clean it up, or she would have to clean their diapers and wash their faces and feed them and so on. Now, that put a crack in the armor. This of a sudden, I started to look at her differently, and one day... I thought about that every night before I went to bed. And I would try to put myself in her place. And then it dawned on me, wow, here's somebody who didn't have a childhood because of children. And we were taken there. And she had no patience. So I got some flowers. (laughs) I went to Susie Hathaway's house. (laughs) Her mother. Her mother's name was Laura. And I went to Mrs. Hathaway. She had mums. And I said, may I have, may I cut some of these? I want to give them to my aunt. And she said, certainly. And we made a little bouquet. And I walked to my aunt's place, knocked on the door. And when she heard, she said, who's there? I said, Emily Ann. She said, what do you want? Uh, I want to talk with you. Come on in. It was kind of like that. I went wow. in with flowers behind my back. I walked up to her and I said, Ann-Am, I handed her to the flower. I just wanted to say thank you. I always cry at this. Wow, it's beautiful. I wanted to say thank you because you took care of us. I never thanked you. And I know that you were not ready to have three children in your life. She wrapped her arms around me and hugged me so tightly and rocked me and said she had raisin-filled cookies on her stove. She jumped and ran to the refrigerator, poured a glass of milk, brought the cookies over. She was glowing with happiness. Nobody really appreciated her. Well, what happened next was so amazing because my best friend Linda and I became her playmates. We would go over to Aunt Em's after school every day and we would play Chinese checkers, regular checkers, jacks on her kitchen table. We would have, with her, we would have tournaments. Then she taught us to play canasta. She was a joy turned into an an utter joy of my life.
0: Oh, that is such a powerful story. And I've never heard of an eight-year-old having that level of awareness. It is what a rare kind of child you were, Emily. It's a really, truly extraordinarily powerful story, which is full of lessons that our world, I feel, so sorely (laughs) needs today. My goodness.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't like to take credit for it, Karina. I truly bless my mother. I think it was the way she taught me about spirit, about God, about my higher, our higher power that enabled that to happen in my life.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's an unforgettable story. So now I want to move on, Emily, to when you were 18 years old and now we're in 1956, which is hard to believe looking at you. You're a very youthful looking lady. (laughs) (laughs) My listeners don't have the opportunity to see you. So you were 18 and you had a near-death experience, which opened the door to a new understanding and even more of these mystical encounters. Mm -hmm. But could you please take us to the moment of the NDE, what preempted it and what happened?
1: I had allergies and I had gone to the allergy specialist that morning and I got allergy shots. This whole procedure of uh, giving shots and so on was relatively new in those days. We know much more now than we knew then. So I came home and... You had to wait in the office for a while, and then the doctor said, okay, you're free to go. Well, I I came home, and my symptoms were different from anaphylactic shock that I read about because I became quite cold. And when I came home, I put on my bathing suit. It was a hot day, and I lay out in the sun, and my body, and I fell asleep. I felt very, very kind of drugged and I fell asleep while well, my body started to swell. It swelled to four or five times my normal size to the point where the nipples of my breast and my skin on my arms and different parts of my body, my legs split wide open because it was that, I was that swollen. My eyes were swollen shut. My tongue was swollen to the point that it was blocking my air passage. So I was in and out of consciousness, and, I, and my heartbeat just boomed, thundered in my body. You can imagine with that kind of swelling. The last thing, it was evening of that day, and the last thing I remember hearing was our family doctor saying to my mother, I can't give her an injection. Her body is too swollen. I can't she can't swallow a pill. All we can do is pray. And that was the last thing I remembered. The next thing I knew, I was whole, completely healthy, and I was on a train. And this train was going through darkness. It was going through outer space, which was very, very dark. And I could see lights twinkling, I mean little stars way out in the distance. And I was at the back of the train, and there were people sitting in front of me, very still, no movement, women with black veils and dark dresses and men in black suits. And I found myself there, like, what am I doing here? So my near-death experience doesn't have a lot of the other attributes that you hear about. I'm sitting there thinking, why am I here? And then I looked at these people and I thought, why aren't they moving? And at that moment, a conductor came down the aisle. And he had, <laughs> he was a glow, his face glowed and he had white hair and he had on a conductor's suit and a hat. And I knew, oh, it was kind of like, oh, he's going to take care. I knew I could feel the love <laughs> as he came toward me. But I, part of me was fearful because of this fear of death. So I said to him, could you tell me where this train is going? And he evaded my answers. And uh, I said, these people, I think they're dead. Are they dead? And he said, well, not, not actually, not really. And I kept asking questions. And the train was slowing down. I could feel it. And he said, uh, we're going to stop now and I will come back for you. You wait until I come back to get you." And I said, okay. And I just sat there and I just felt wonderful. So the people moved to the front, the conductor came back and took me by the hand, and I just felt so loved and protected by him. And when we got up to the opening of the train, he said to me, you may not leave, you may not leave, you may not get off. And I, I wondered, if what am I doing here? Why am I on this train if I can't get off? I was confused until I got behind the people and when I approached the opening and I saw what was outside that train, the most magnificent light that was more than light, (laughs) Um, energy. It was filled with substance and music and love and you can't explain it. But what was most essential was that I watched each person leave the train and merge and become one with the light, each one. And I realized that this is what happens when we die and this is who we really are that we are a part of this light, this love, this God, this universe, this energy and in the distance I could see little buildings that looked very similar <clears throat> excuse me to the buildings that, that you see in little children's books about Israel, you know the rounded, the the little rounded domed buildings and so on. And so I also knew that these people merged, but also became part of the community that they kept who they were, that they joined a community that there was other life there and individuals and, but also a part of the whole. And It was instant. I just knew it all. And then, this is the most amazing thing. I looked around the corner, and there was an angel (laughs) standing on the top of a small building with a rounded top. The angel was probably eight or nine feet tall, huge, and made of light, made of golden light but defined. And I said to the conductor, oh my gosh, there's an angel and this, and a male. <laughs> I, I perceive this as a male. He just spread his wings and floated down to the ground. And it was magnificent. I will never forget that. I can see it right now. Now, what was The thing that was so uh, (laughs) astounding to me, not only was I looking at an angel, but I was looking at a male angel, and I always thought that all angels were female (laughs) because my grandmother above my bed had placed, it's a classic picture of two little children walking across a rickety bridge, and their guardian angel, a beautiful woman, is behind them this beautiful angel with lovely wings. Well, that was my introduction to angels. And so there you have it. When I woke up, I couldn't talk. The swelling had gone down uh, considerably. My poor mother was swabbing me down with cool water and a soft cloth. And I remember she said something to me about she hoped that my tears would relieve my suffering. And she, I couldn't speak. But even if I could, what I would have said would have sounded crazy. Yeah. I died and went to heaven and came back. Now, she was able to get me up into the bathroom. And I could see just blurry. And I remember looking into the bathroom mirror, and I was absolutely horrible looking. It was almost like I'd lost my nose. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it didn't matter one little bit. I almost wanted to laugh and I knew I was going to be fine. and I have enjoyed good health ever since.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That's just wonderful. So did that end your
1: fear of death forever, that moment that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I as a matter of fact it pretty much ended my fear.
0: Oh wow, my that's yes, period. okay.
1: When I was uh, 75 when I turned 75, I took my first parachute jump. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> You're
0: talking to someone who would never do that, so I'm so <laughs> impressed.
1: <laughs> and what what is funny about that is because I had I really don't have much fear. And the, uh, the man who was, who was taking me on the jump, he was so concerned because I was so calm that he was so concerned that when we, number one, that I wouldn't want to leave the plane because I, I was so calm. And number two, that when we did jump, that I would be hysterical and start kicking and waving my arms, which can be very dangerous. When Once we got out there, I, I said to him, oh, I love this. And then he confessed to me, because I loved it so much, he prolonged the jump. We swerved through clouds. And, and oh. he, <laughs> he tried to make it last as long as, as we could. It oh. was wonderful.
0: So now, Emily, I want to ask you about what is probably my personal favorite in mystical interludes and it is such an extraordinary experience which has to do with a spontaneous vision of a past life that you had which and again like NDEs I've always been fascinated by past lives and I've read up on them for years now decades and I've never heard of one like this this sort of it's spontaneous you weren't hypnotized you weren't searching for your past life but then you saw it. Can you tell us,
1: please, what happened? Yes. It was uh, happened pr- right before dawn. I lived in a house that overlooked a forest. We lived on a ridge, so the forest was below us. And when you look straight out, you could see the horizon. So I didn't put curtains on the back of that house because the view was so spectacular. I woke up... Uh, I had 3 children at the time, 3 very two babies <laughs> uh and uh, one my daughter was a little older. And I woke up to use the bathroom and um, I checked on the kids on my way back to to bed. And when I looked out the window, it was just a gray. It was just beginning to just a little bit of light, but it what you couldn't see any real light. It was just gray dawn. But it was so serene. So instead of uh, just crawling under the covers, I propped myself up and I just enjoyed the peace and the serenity and the beauty. So the next thing I knew, and it happened in a split second, I was floating toward a wooden, if I say castle, palace, that, that's wrong, I knew I was in Siam. (laughs) I knew where I was. And I knew the building, this huge building. It had a courtyard and a very massive, very wide steps. So I floated up the steps and I floated through and I kept kind of circulating until I got to a room. I floated inside the room and I was behind a Siamese girl and I recognized myself and I floated around and looked into her eyes and I knew what she was feeling. I knew that she was waiting for her tutor. I knew about her life i knew that she was the daughter of one of the many wives of this particular this this man who was the ruler of that particular province now he this was not some big kingdom this was a just a regional kind of ruler who had power there and he carried out all the traditions and he had many wives. Now, the daughters didn't get much attention. They, I mean, the daughters had duties to perform. The sons were very special. And they spent time with the father. Well, my mother was uh, pretty low on the totem pole. And the wives competed for attention from the husband now and usually uh, the, the kids I mean if, if if you had a son and you you got a lot of attention from the husband if you had a daughter then that daughter had better be pretty special for you to get notice from the husband now one of the things that all the daughters in this particular palace uh, their duty, among other things, they had to be educated, but they had to learn the traditional dances. And they had they performed at certain events, uh, festivals and ceremonies and so on. And they would perform and they had to practice every day. And one of the things that they, and I didn't know any of this. <laughs> I didn't realize that In order to do those traditional dances, you have to start training your fingers to bend back. Wow, hand dancing kind of thing. Well, if you ever look at a Siamese dancer, and uh, today they wear long things on their fingers. But in order to perform the particular hand movements where the fingers had to be turned up, you had to do hand-stretching exercises, constantly. And the daughter, I, in my other life, I had long arms, I was thin and graceful and beautiful, but I could not get the hand movements right, and I detested the practice and the training. So what happened was that my mother would confine me to my room and remove my liberties until, unless I practiced, unless my tutor gave her a good report. Well, my tutor was an old woman who had a stick. And here I am floating and looking into my eyes and knowing all of this. It's an extraordinary, and I, astonishing level of detail. Yes. <laughs> well, I can tell you what the room looked like and uh, the furniture in the room. And before the tutor arrived, I, we could hear sounds from outside and uh, there were shutters. And my, <laughs> I don't know how what to call her, the other me, opened the shutters and looked out and there were... Uh, two boys, uh, they had some like a donkey or a mule or something pulling a cart with grains or hay or something. And one of the boys was on top of the the grain. And there were girls that were following and throwing stones at them. And they were all laughing and giggling. And I could feel the pain and the loneliness of my Siamese self, wishing to be there, wanting community, wanting to be a part of laughter, of joy, to be removed from the prison that she was in. And I felt that so powerfully, and it was so heavy. Now, she had on an indigo blue kind of a what what do you call that? Sarong type okay. of thing. And um, I remember standing behind her and, and looking at all of this. And then the door opened and I left. And I was back in my bedroom. So
0: the door opened in your other
1: life? Yes. And, the, and I knew the tutor was coming. Uh-huh. Okay. With her stick. And I knew what those what those sessions were like. Um, you know, she would have to move her hands in certain ways. And if one of her fingers didn't match, she would get cracked with, with this little stick. And she absolutely hated it. And this woman, the, her tutor, was not a happy camper eater.
0: <laughs> so your spirit floating over this scene, and it's such a such a detailed scene. It's just so wonderful. I have so many questions, but I'll try to control myself. (laughs) So first of all, what era do you think this was in Thailand? Did you have an understanding of that?
1: No, but I, and I thought about this a lot. As a matter of fact, I should research this. I, one day, and I didn't write anything down, but I went to Thailand. I was there. And I saw, I mean, I I visited and our guide, it's really funny, our guide's name was Anna. And she and I had very similar facial features. Uh, But most of the people uh, were, you know, I didn't see any long arms and, and they didn't look like this person in my past life. Well, one day, and I started to get curious about that because I really wanted to pay particular attention when I went there. And the people didn't quite look like what I saw until I came home and I went back. And I, as I kept going back in history, there was a family that had these features. They were They had long limbs and long fingers and so on, the men and the women. And I thought, oh, it just, it didn't matter to me. I wasn't trying to go back. I wasn't trying to get information. Yes, yes. It's kind of, it's what I knew. Yes. What I know. Yes. And that's what's significant. Two other things, two other things that are remarkable in this life. I have always had trouble with my hands. To this day, I'm allergic to chocolate and peanuts, Karina. And if I eat a uh, something that has uh, peanut oil in it, or you know, mistakenly chocolate, I get blisters on my hands. And and if it's bad, my fingers will swell, and I can't wear my rings. And the other thing about that is. Even when I was learning cursive writing, I have terrible penmanship. I, my, I just <laughs> my my hands just don't work very well. I mean, I'm grateful for them. They do, they do, but fine work. Yes. Uh, I forget it. I, I marvel at friends who thread needles and do fine fine work and so on. That's just beyond me. Just beyond me. And the other thing that I think is significant is that that indigo blue was so clear. And my mother, in this lifetime, that was her signature color. Did you recognize any of the
0: people in that Siamese life as uh, spirits that are
1: incarnated today around you? Well, I only saw the girl. Oh, okay. I did not. I knew. I knew of the other people I Ah. could see them almost in my mind's eye while I was there right so you were in her
0: head you were in the girl's head anticipating and the other thing that struck me when I first read of this experience of yours was that what sort of ignited the experience was a moment where you were looking out your window and your, your Siamese self in this life, this young woman, was also looking out the window. And I just right. I wondered about that moment of resonance and how that, it's almost like a little match to a flame, like in a way it inspired the vision. I don't know if that ever struck you.
1: Yeah, right. But it was the sound that caused her to open the shutters. She heard, she heard the... Uh, laughter outside ah. with the other, with the boys in the cart and the ah. girls following. I see, uh, I see. Yeah. How long do you think
0: this lasted, this experience, in, our, in your current life, when you, when you came back?
1: Well, I can tell you that it was lighter than it was when I first sat down. When I first sat down, it was grey. Yes. The the sky was just gray, and I could barely make out the horizon. When I came back, uh, it was lighter, and the horizon was much clearer.
0: And how so, did you
1: feel when you came back? What did you think oh about my what? Gosh. <laughs> I was ch- I was beside myself, and I had had I I was married to a man who did not. Cotton to anything like this. I had had other experiences, and he just brushed them aside. He thought maybe I had mental problems. <laughs> anyway, at that time, that was my first marriage. By the way, he was he was the father of my three children, and he he would not entertain any of these things. Okay. So I knew I couldn't tell him, and. I just kind of walked around in circles and I thought about it constantly and I didn't know how to talk about it. How do you tell somebody about things like this? That's right. Yeah. And we're talking
0: how... the 60s. This is prior to a lot of I... you know the writings sort of the contemporary writings about this this material and Also, I guess that must apply to your near-death experience. I I wonder if you felt open to sharing that because that was way before Raymond Moody wrote Life After Life in the 1970s, I believe.
1: Yes, it was 75 or 78. Yes, yes. Somewhere around there. So you were
0: carrying these profound experiences inside you (laughs) quite privately.
1: And that's why I am so grateful for the discussion group that we have because we can freely share these things and we learn from each other. It's it's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to share these things today.
0: Oh, it so is, and that's probably a lovely point to leave off today, Emily. But before we go, I just wanted to get your opinion because you're so you've had all of these mystical experiences and then Your second book includes 39 of your readers' experiences. There's so much out there. What do you think happens after we die?
1: I think that nobody knows for sure, number one, Uh, but I, I intuit and from my experiences that we continue to learn and grow. And I think that it depends on where we are, where we end up in this life as to what happens next. I want to experience everything I possibly can before my time is up here because that's what I will take with me, how I have shaped my character, my education, my skills, my intelligence. I will take that with me and I will enter the the other realm on that level. And I will have decisions to make and I will continue to grow. Now, because of my past life, I absolutely believe in reincarnation. So I think that I don't know what the rules are on the other side, whether I will make a decision as to whether I'm going to come back or what I need to learn or whether it, those things will be given to me. I have no idea. But all I know is that life never ends. And I do believe that it, it is recycled. And it's very, very important to realize in this life that we are one, that there is no us and them. There is only we. And what I do to you I do to myself. The golden rule is real. (laughs) That is truly the way we all need to live.
0: Oh, well, I don't want to say anything further. That's such a beautiful note to end on, Emily. And um, I'm so grateful for your time today. Please tell our listeners how they can find you, get in touch with you and find your books.
1: I have a website that you can reach by either mysticalinterludes.com or emilyrodovich.com. And both my books are available on Amazon.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Emily. It's been such a delight to speak with you. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again, perhaps on the show.
1: I would love that. Thank you, Karina. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback. So please message me through my website, karinamachado.com or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Music